Our Father, we thank you that you've not left us in the dark, but you instruct us with what you desire us to know as your children, as your household and your family. Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, help us to be clear about your teaching and help us to express this in a loving way to one another in our body, Lord. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. In this... uh, three-part series that we've been looking at about the question of, is it ever appropriate to address someone about what you think is sin in their life and go and talk to them? Hey, I think you're sinning. You need to straighten up. Because we all know that Jesus says, don't judge lest you be judged. But then Jesus also, at the same time, instructs his people to be discerning about sin in their own lives and other people's lives. And if you see sin in a brother's life, you need to go talk to them about it. But he says the goal, of course, is restoration. And so that's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks, that we see that God's heart is to see sinners repent and come back to him and be restored. And although we didn't look at the parable of uh, the prodigal son, that's the lesson of that, isn't it? Uh, Jesus is warning us not to be like the older brother. He was happy to receive the blessings from his father because he thought he deserved them. But he had a judgmental, condemning attitude about his wayward younger brother and was not interested in seeing his brother restored. He didn't know his father's heart, did he? (laughs) That his father rejoiced to see the younger brother repent and come back and be restored. And so that's the distinction that Jesus teaches us about not being judgmental and condemning like the older brother, but we need to be able to humbly and lovingly and gently go to others who are in sin with the goal of calling them back and restoring them, just as God has done with us. And so that's what we've looked at the last couple of weeks. But now we're going to throw a new wrinkle in the... We're going to throw a new wrinkle in the problem. Suppose I and another brother don't actually agree about whether something is sinful or not. Now, I'm not talking about somebody who's off doing all kinds of wild sin and making all kinds of hairy excuses for it. I'm talking about a brother or sister who genuinely has a conviction from the Scripture. I really don't think this is wrong. And some of us look at the Scripture and say, I I think the Scripture says it is wrong. Now what do we do? One thing we could do, if if Carol and I had a disagreement like that, we could just take it out in the parking lot and settle it, you know, in which case I would lose. (laughs) Or the, you know, the traditional American way to handle it is one of us just goes across the street and starts another church. You know, and so on one side of the street, there's the church that does, and on this side is the church that doesn't. You know, that's... But, you know, the Lord knows that that situation is going to come up all the time. And so he gives us instruction about what to do about it. And there's two main places. And we just read one of them in Romans 14. And that's where Paul just kind of lays out the principal instruction. But there's another place what we're actually going to look at today. And that's in Paul's letter uh, to the Corinthians. It's what we call the first Corinthians. It's actually the second letter. But in 1 Corinthians, and that's where Paul is actually writing to a real church with real people that are actually having some problems with a specific issue. 
And he's writing to them to apply this principle in their situation. And that's the one that we're going to look at. As I was thinking about which of these passages to teach, I thought about using this one because uh, in Corinthians, because most of you know I'm a veterinarian, and to maintain my license, I have to go get continuing education. And so usually when I go to these uh, seminars, what the presenter will do is usually at the beginning of the session, he'll present the basic, say if we're studying a particular disease, They'll present the basic science, okay, remind us of the physiology and the anatomy and then talk about the disease and uh, its course and how you can manage it. And they'll give the basic science, but then what they'll do is they'll put up case reports. And they say, okay, I'm going to show you what it looks like in a real dog, in a real case. So they show, flash up a picture of a dog and they'll say, here's Maggie. A six-year-old spay golden retriever that weighs 63 pounds that presented to the clinic with these symptoms, and we got this history, and we did this physical exam, and they walk us through the case. Well, that's kind of what we're doing here. We just read in Romans 12 the basic instruction, and now we're going to see Paul apply it in a real situation. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, a reminder about what 1 Corinthians is. We call it 1 Corinthians, but we know it's at least the second letter because he refers to a previous letter in here. And remember what's happening here. The church at Corinth is a church that Paul had planted on one of his missionary journeys, and he had actually stayed there for a year and a half teaching them. Uh, and so he knows these people personally, and they know him. So he'd been there teaching for a year and a half. Now, it'll be relevant that while he was there, they never paid him. For at least a period of time when he was first there, he actually had a job and he worked. He was a tent maker by profession. And so he worked for a while until finally some, um, some other Christian brothers came and they brought funds from another church to support him. He was a missionary. And, and so then he was able to minister full time. But he never took pay from the Corinthians. But anyway, he was there for a year and a half. He left... Went other places, of course. But there's a point where they've had some correspondence, and Paul writes this letter, and it has two main parts. First, in the first few pages, he addresses a couple of particular problems they're having in the church that he's heard about. He says, I've heard about this. It's been reported to me. He talks about their divisions and factions in the church, and he addresses that. And then secondly, they had failed to address a problem of immorality in one of their members. He was involved in ongoing sexual sin, and the church just didn't do anything about it. And so he addressed that issue. Then what he does is if you look at the first verse of chapter 7, Paul says, Now concerning the things about which you wrote, from here in the rest of the letter, what he's going to address is several things about which they had written him. And they'd written things in the letter, and there's, there's six of these now concernings. And generally what he does is he'll quote some of the things that they had said in their letter. And in most cases, what Paul says, well, that's sort of right, but that's not the whole story. There are other factors and so he teaches about the specific thing, but also the implications. Well, what we're looking at this morning is we're looking at the third now concerning. And that's the beginning of chapter 8. Beginning of chapter 8. Now, this is the third now concerning that he's addressing. 
and he says, Now concerning things sacrificed to idols. So, what we're going to find out as we read through this, now remember, they've already had discussions and correspondence, so Paul knows there's some things he doesn't say in here because he doesn't need to. They already know it. And I'll kind of help us read through this. I'm not making this stuff up. Most of it becomes much more clear in Second Corinthians in his second letter. But the whole issue is there are some of the people in the church that think it's all right to eat meat that had been sacrificed to false idols. And there are some people that think it's not. Now, we don't have to know all the details about uh, the pagan sacrifices, but just know even among the Jews, when they sacrificed at the temple, only part of that sacrifice was actually burned up. Part of it was allowed for the priests and the Levites and even the people offering the sacrifice, they got to eat it. So we don't have to know the details, just know that when meat got sacrificed to these false idols, some of the meat was then available for people to eat. And the question is, for Christians, is it right or wrong to eat that? And there was a disagreement about this. And there were some of the people in the church that thought it was fine to eat. And let's see what Paul says about it. Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, he's probably quoting them. We're going to find out later that a big part of the problem is the Corinthians don't actually think very much of Paul. And what they're saying is, we don't need your teaching. We know all about this. He's quoting them. We know that we all have knowledge, but he gives a warning. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. If anyone supposes that he knows anything, he's not yet known as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he's known by him. Now, Paul's just going to drop this here and move on, but he's going to pick up on it later on. Just file that away in the back of your mind. By the way, I don't know if it's... Well, no, it wouldn't have been one of you. In that questionnaire about uh, wanting input, some of you haven't seen it yet, but some of you have had an opportunity to fill out a questionnaire about input about our teaching at Grace Bible Church, and someone put this in there, (laughs) that we're good at teaching, but we need to be careful about this, and I appreciate that warning. Paul will come back to that later. So, Paul answers the question, is it all right to eat meat sacrificed to idols? Verses 4 through 6. Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father, from whom are all things and we exist for Him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things and we exist through Him. Now, if you've never read any of this, it may not be apparent to you, but what Paul just said is, yes, it is okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols. He's probably quoting the reasons that the Corinthians had given, that it's all right to eat. If it's not apparent to you yet, it will be at the end of chapter 10, where Paul explicitly says, yes, it's all right to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So his answer is, yes, you're right, it is okay to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but... That's not the only thing that's true. There are other factors to consider. It's true that meat sacrificed to idols doesn't have some kind of cooties on it that are going to make you defile you in God's eyes. It's just meat. But there are other things to think about. 
He says, but... Remind myself of how far I was going to read here. Verse 7 and 8. But not everyone has this knowledge. But some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We're neither the worse if we do not eat or better if we do eat. So he's saying we need to be aware that not everybody thinks it's all right. Some people think that in God's eyes it's wrong to eat meat sacrificed to idols. So do we just ignore it? Well, who cares what they think? No, look what he says. He says, being in nine, but you be careful that this right of yours, you might use a pencil and circle whatever, your, your Bible, it may have, uh, liberty or freedom or right. There's no telling how your Bible translates, but make a little pencil circle there. I'll explain why later. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, whoa. You might just make a mental note of that. We've gone way beyond just eating meat that was sacrificed to an idol. Just file that away. It's actually eating in the temple, idol's temple. If someone sees you have knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he's weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it's weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Okay, if this is new to you, it may not be entirely clear what's going on. What is, this, what is Paul meaning by a weaker brother in a weaker conscience? And there's really two aspects to this. One of the minor ones is he used in Romans 12 is that the person with the weaker conscience is someone that may not really be entirely clear or as far along in understanding what freedoms they have in Christ or not, about what's right or what's wrong. But the more important aspect for us here that Paul is stressing is the person is the person with the weaker conscience is one that maybe they're not very good at following their convictions and letting their conscience guide them. In other words, they may think that something is wrong, but they're very easily persuaded to go ahead and do it anyway, even though they think it's wrong. And then they not only feel guilty, but we're going to find they actually are guilty. Now, why might people do that? What Peer pressure. Well, I think that's wrong, but maybe people laugh at me if I don't go along with it. Or maybe it's simply their own pleasure. Well, I I really think that's wrong, but I really like doing it. So I'm going to do it anyway. So here he's talking about a weak conscience is somebody that they think something is wrong, but they might go ahead and do it anyway. And Paul said that's a very, very serious thing. Well, Why? Well, he doesn't say explicitly here in 1 Corinthians, but he did say in Romans, and that's why we read Romans 14. Why? Why is it so serious? Because remember what we talked about last week. What is sin? 
Sin isn't simply a matter of breaking the rules. Sin is saying, God, I know you said this is wrong, but I don't care. I'm going to do it anyway. It's a lack of belief. It's a lack of faith. It's a lack of trust in God. And if someone thinks that God has prohibited something, but I get persuaded to do it anyway, what am I doing? You know, even if I'm mistaken, even if God hadn't actually prohibited it, but I think he did, then what am I doing? I am, in fact, living a life of unbelief and unfaith. And Paul says, you be careful that whatever freedom you think you have in Christ, you be very careful that you don't influence a brother or sister to violate their conscience. Because that's a big deal. If you do that, you're sinning against him and you're sinning against me. It's Jesus' words. That is a big deal. I have a note there, uh, a little script thing, what it does not mean. We're actually going to, I'm going to wait on that and come back to the end of chapter 10 because that's actually where Paul brings it up. Basically, the weaker brother, we're not talking about somebody that has strong convictions and standing there and I'm not going to do that. He's not talking about, he's talking about the weaker brother that's easily persuaded. So where does he go from there? Um, What he's going to do now is he's told them, okay, you need to be careful about exercising your rights because of the effect it might have on other people. So now what Paul is going to do is use himself as an example. He's going to talk about the rights he has as an apostle, but there are times when he does not utilize those rights because of the effect it will have on other people. So this is one of those places where with your pencil you want to politely mark out that chapter division because we're just going right on. This is still part of the same conversation. Paul says... Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you're the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. He's saying, look, <clears throat> you guys know I lived with you. I'm, the fact that I was there ministering is why your church even exists. Verse 3, my defense to those who examine me is this. Don't we have a right to eat and drink? He's talking about apostles. Don't we have a right to take along a believing wife, even as the rest of the apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or do only Barnabas and I not have a right to refrain from working? All of these rights, three times Paul has listed his rights. This is the same word that in the previous chapter when Paul said, be careful that... that your rights, that using your rights doesn't somehow become a stumbling block. It's the same word here in Greek. So he's saying, I have these rights. Verse 7, he goes on. Uh, who at any time serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat the fruit of it? Or who tends a flock and does not use the milk of the flock? I'm not speaking these things according to human judgment, am I? Or does not the law also say these things? For it's written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox while he's threshing. God's not concerned about oxen, is he? 
Or is he speaking altogether for our sake? Yes, for our sake it's written, because the plowman ought to plow in hope and the thresher to thresh in hope of sharing the crops. If we sowed spiritual things in you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this right over you, do we not more? Nevertheless, we did not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. Okay, if you just drop into the middle of chapter 9, you might think Paul has changed his subject, but he's still talking about what he started in chapter 8. He's saying, you may have a right to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but you need to be careful that exercising that right doesn't affect other people in a negative way. And so he's saying, he's using himself as an example. I have lots of rights as an apostle, but I refrain from using some of them so that I don't hinder other people spiritually. Now, you would think Paul had made his point, and now he could just go on. But as you're going to read, he's going to go on and on and on for several paragraphs about this. And if you're not familiar with the situation, you're going to think, man, Paul, give it a rest. I mean, <laughs> let go and go on, you know. Why have you got to be in your bonnet? Well, there's some insider information that you may not pick up if you only read 1 Corinthians. But there's a problem between Paul and the Corinthian church that we know because in the second Corinthians, which is actually Paul's, at least his fourth letter, it, got, it gets all laid out on the table. The gloves come off and it gets all laid out. And so if you read second Corinthians and come back, you say, oh, that's what's going on. So here's what's going on. Paul is wanting to use his own life among them as an apostle as an example but the thing is, there's a problem between Paul and the church in Corinth, and that is they actually don't like Paul very much. And in fact, many of them don't even believe he's an apostle. And thirdly, it's, it sounds strange, I'll explain it, but in 2 Corinthians it all comes out in the open. I'm not making any of this stuff up. It's just you can read it in 2 Corinthians. Part of the reason that they didn't think he was an apostle is because that year and a half he stayed with them, he never accepted any pay. Now, you'd think that would, oh, cool. But that's not how they looked at it. Uh, actually, the way they looked at it is, it sounds weird, but we can relate to that. Suppose we're going to have a men's retreat, and we're going to have a guest speaker come. And guest speaker A has a $2,000 speaker fee, and he requires a nice motel room and expects to be provided um, a nice rent car and a per diem to eat out at a nice restaurant. You think, man, this guy must have a lot of juice. You know, he's, he's, he must be a big gun. But we've got a guy over here and says, oh, I, nothing, I'll, I'll do it for free. And, oh, I don't, I don't need a motel room. If just somebody's got a couch I can stay on. Somebody give me a lift. You know, somebody will just give me a lift. And, uh, no, nah, per diem, just somebody give me a sandwich, I'll be fine. And what do we think? Well, man, he must not be an in-demand conference speaker. He must not be worth much. Well, that's the way they looked at Paul. <clears throat> and so what we're going to see, the reason Paul's going to go on and on is he's not teaching the Corinthians about apostles. They know about apostles. These are all rhetorical questions. What Paul is doing is he's defending the fact that he is, in fact, an apostle, and he's explaining why he did not take pay. 
Now, again, you can't tell that just from 1 Corinthians, but it's all laid out in 2 Corinthians. So let's continue reading um, 13 through 18. Do you not know that those who perform sacred services eat the food of the temple, and those who attend regularly to the altar have their share from the altar? So also the Lord directed those who proclaim the gospel to get their living from the gospel. And the Corinthians would say, well, we know that. But I have used none of these things, Paul says, and I'm not writing. I am not writing these things so that it will be done so in my case. For it would be better for me to die than to have any man make my boast an empty one. So I, this is kind of emotional. When we translated this with the Finney guys, we did 1 Corinthians about two or three years ago. We spent a lot of time talking about this and telling the Finney guys, you know, there's a reason why we're not charging you for me to come over here. There are a lot of brothers and sisters back in the States that are helping me come, but we're not charging you. We talked about this. That's what Paul's doing. For Line 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. For woe to me is if I don't preach. If I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. What then is my reward? That when I preach the gospel, I may offer the gospel without charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So again, what he's explaining to the Corinthians now, the reason he's going over this whole thing again, is because the Corinthians are having trouble swallowing this. Um, But he's explaining to them why he did not use his rights. But now, verse 19 through 23, what Paul is going to do is he's going to take this principle of restraining the exercise of your Christian freedoms for the benefit of others. He's going to broaden this out to being more than whether or not there's Christian brothers and sisters that disagree about what's right or wrong. He's going to take this principle out. Nearly all of these six um, now concernings, he does that. He'll he'll hone in on the specific issue they're looking at, but then he'll broaden the principle. And what he's going to do here is broaden this principle is that we need to be careful about how we express our Christian freedoms and how it affects other people, especially cross-culturally. Verse 19, For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all so that I may win more. To the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews to those who are under the law as under the law, though I'm not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law as without law. He's talking about Gentiles who don't follow the Mosaic law. I'll be like them, though not being without the law of God. I am under the law of Christ. But I do that so I might win those who are without law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men so that I may by all means save some. I do all things for the sake of the gospel so that I may become a fellow partaker of it. Okay, this is actually fairly simple. Paul is saying I'm not under the Mosaic law. I am under the law of God and the law of Christ. But there are a lot of things about the way people do things. i got a lot of flexibility, and basically I want to do things that aren't going to be a problem for other people. 
Okay, Carrie and I deal with this a lot when we're in Papua New Guinea. I'll give a specific example. Carrie and I do not hold hands when we're in Papua New Guinea, not in public. Now, I have guy friends. I'll hold hands with them and walk down the street holding hands with them. And But there was one Papua New Guinean friend of mine that one time I thought he was going to come to P&G for a while, and I told him, I said, Sangama, when we're in America, do not hold my hand. <laughs> Because it says something different here when it says when what it says there. Papua New Guinea were just friends. But in Papua New Guinea, what they regard as proper or improper contact between a man and woman, even a husband and wife, is different from ours. Is that right or wrong? They just regard that as inappropriate. Now, unfortunately, there are sometimes some missionaries that are just completely oblivious to that. However I do it, whatever feels right to me is right. And I've actually heard missionaries, one particularly is from America, and by golly, I'm going to teach people to, I'm going to teach the people how to love their wives and demonstrate um, affection for their wives, and they need to hold hands, and I need to, we're going to show them the right way to do it. And uh, I actually knew one missionary who had worked in South America, and um, another missionary had tried to do that. And he said one of the church leaders <laughs> came up to him and he said, You know what? We love our wives too, but we don't rub on them in public. <laughs> now you might think, what's wrong with holding hands? But we have those things too, don't we? What part of your wife's body do you think it's appropriate to put your hand on in public? You've got lines too, don't you? Does God draw a particular line? Does He tell you where that line is? There's a lot of cultural things going on in there. We need to be willing to honor. If I'm in Papua New Guinea and they regard it as inappropriate for us to hold hands, I need to regard that the same way as you would think it's very appropriate if I put my hands on certain parts of Carrie's body in public. You'd think, ha! Well, we need to respect them. And Paul's talking about that kind of thing. We need to... We need to... The gospel is... The true parts of the gospel are hard enough to swallow without us making things worse with our particular scruples. So we need to make sure that we're not creating problems. So that's what Paul is saying. He's always, if you think about it in all of Paul's missionary journeys, nearly everywhere he went, people spoke Greek because it had recently been a Greek colony. But he's, he's always working cross-culturally, everywhere he went. So, with that in mind, Paul says that I discipline myself like an athlete, so I won't be disqualified. In other words, there are things I have freedom to do and I might want to do, but I'm going to restrain myself for to achieve the higher good. Let's read what he says in verses 24 through 27. He says, Don't you know that those who run in a race all run, but only one receives a prize? Run in such a way that you may win. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Therefore, I run in such a way as not without aim. I box in such a way as not beating the air, but I discipline my body and make it my slave, so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be 
disqualified. So it's easy to think about, I mean, it's easy to relate to the imagery he's using. You know, if an athlete is training to run a marathon, now in the morning what he might like to do is lay in bed till 10 o'clock in the morning and then just get up and sit on the couch in front of the TV and eat donuts all day. That might be what he'd like to do. But he thinks, you know what, I've got a goal that I'd like to achieve. And so I'm going to set my alarm for 6.30. I'm going to get up. I'm going to go run. I'm going to eat a healthy meal. And he's doing that. He's disciplining his body to achieve a desirable goal, right? And that's what Paul is saying. He's just saying that. In our Christian life, there's all kinds of things that we might want to do and rights that we have. But, hey, self-discipline is one of the fruits of the Spirit. Let's exercise that for the greater good. Because, and this kind of comes out of the, the athlete um, the athlete imagery, he said, I do that so I won't be disqualified. What on earth does that mean? Well, hang on to that because, once again, as we go into chapter 10, you can politely pencil through line 10 because... Paul is not changing subjects. He's still on the same subject here. What he's going to do is he's used himself as a positive example. Now he's going to give a negative example. The people of Israel, when they were led out of Egypt and were in the wilderness, that they were all, did all kinds of sinful self-indulgence. They were undisciplined, and a bunch of them were disqualified. So he's giving them as a negative example. For I don't want you to be unaware, brethren, that our fathers were all under the cloud, all passed through the sea, all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they were drinking from a spiritual rock which followed them, and the rock was Christ. Okay, they're like us. They've experienced, they've gone to church every Sunday, and they've participated in all this. And yet, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, I had a brain cloud when I made your outline. I think I put on there some of them. Actually, it was nearly all of them, if you notice in your outline. Actually, nearly all but two of them, (laughs) all but two of them were, verse 5, Nevertheless, with most of them, God was, now your Bible probably says something like not well pleased or something. That's actually the same word he used at the end of chapter 9 about being disqualified. Uh, It's because of the grammar and it's the form of the word. And I'm not going to get up here and put all the Greek grammar up here. But it's clearly he's he's using the same word. It's just a different form of it. He's saying, I don't want to be disqualified, but look at the negative example. There was a, most of them were disqualified. They were disqualified. Why? Why? Verse, we're going to read, um, let's see how far I was going to go, 6 to 11, he's going to explain why they were disqualified. Now, these things happened as examples for us. He's talking about stories about Israel. So that we would not crave evil things as they also crave. He's going to list four things. Don't be idolaters as some of them were, as it's written. The people sat down to eat and drink and stood up to play. Nor let us act immorally as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in one day. Nor let us try the Lord as some of them did and were destroyed by the serpents. Nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. 
Now, verse 11, he's reminding us again why he's telling us this. Now, these things happened to them as an example, and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come. So this is an example that when people are just self-indulgent, when they don't have self-discipline in the use of their freedoms, that it actually can bring destruction on them. I'm going to, I'm going to risk interrupting my train of thought to point something out here. And I'm sorry, I know it may seem like I just have one string on my banjo, but I'm always trying to encourage people about the Old Testament. You notice that where, that, uh, what Paul is doing here is he's not only basing nearly all of his teaching on the Old Testament. Even when he's using illustrations, he doesn't get illustrations off the Internet. Nearly all of his illustrations in his sermons come from the Old Testament. And notice who he's writing to. He's writing to a primarily Gentile audience, and he's writing to an audience upon whom the ends of the ages has come. What Paul is saying, what Paul is doing, he's using the Old Testament in order to teach God's ways to a Gentile audience who are Christians under the New Covenant. They're in the New Age. He knows they're not under the Mosaic Law. But he still thinks that the Old Testament is primarily where we learn about God and how we need to serve Him. So I'm just going to pitch that out because you guys know I like the Old Testament. I'm surprised how many Christians may not come out and say it, but functionally they ignore the Old Testament because they think it's irrelevant. Clearly, the writers of the New Testament, including Jesus, did not think that. So anyway, I I, I just get up on my soapbox. So let's get back to where we were. Um, I want to take just a moment about what does it mean to be disqualified. Um, let me see if actually I see if I read. Yeah. He said that the people in the wilderness, that they were disqualified and they were laid low. And he doesn't want to be disqualified. The big question, you can look at commentaries, is he talking about people losing their salvation or is he talking about people experiencing some kind of discipline from the Lord? Now, I think there's a chance that Paul may have actually been referring to both, whichever one applies to you, whether you've never actually trusted in the first place or maybe you are a believer, but you're just simply not living faithfully. Um, I think probably he's leaning towards actual Christians who are saved, but they might experience discipline. Uh, I'm going to give you three references. You can just pencil them down and you can look at them later if you want to. Uh, you remember last week we looked at, or the week before, we looked at Moses in Numbers 20. We know Moses was saved. He appeared with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. But he was disqualified. He didn't get to go into the promised land. That's in Numbers 20. In this very letter in 1 Corinthians in chapter 5, when Paul is rebuking the church because they have failed to deal with a sinner in the church, uh, he talks about this guy being uh, turned over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might be saved. 
By the way, as a sideline, Paul rebukes the Corinthians for not putting this guy out of the church, but Paul has to do the opposite in 2 Corinthians. After the guy has repented, the church doesn't want to bring him back. (laughs) And Paul says, guys, that's the whole point of church discipline is to bring them back and restore them. He has to tell them, bring him back. Bring him back. Side issue. Um, the other one is actually in the in chapter eleven of this letter. He's gonna he's gonna rebuke the Corinthians because when they have communion, they have a meal along with communion, and it was getting pretty wild. And in fact, there are rich people bringing food and not sharing it. There are even people getting drunk. And as a direct, he's directly alluding back to what happened to Israel. He said, "Some of you are sick and even sleep because of that. They're being laid low." Uh, Terry refers to that passage every time we take communion. This is, that's where it came from here. So, what Paul is warning them is, we need to be careful that we're not like the Israelites, who they experienced all these things, and yet when they were living a selfish, self-indulgent life, undisciplined and not following what the Lord said, that they were open to chastisement from the Lord. So don't do that. So what do we do? Verse 12. He's warning them. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. By the way, in this passage, we're going to read a lot of verses that you probably know and have even memorized, but maybe you've never learned what it's there for. He says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed that he doesn't fall. This goes back to the very beginning. Remember when he said... Now, concerning things sacrificed to idols, we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about this. If you think you're so smart and spiritual that you can't... If you think you're so good that you can't stumble, you better watch out. You are on dangerous ground. But... There's encouragement. Paul is always getting grief. People always think, well, Paul's easy believism. Or they complain, well, man, Paul's always telling people what to do and laying down the law. No, look what he says. Paul always goes back to this. No temptation has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. We all experience temptation. And we've all been unfaithful. But what does it say? Who is faithful? God is faithful. He'll not allow you to be tempted or tested beyond what you're able. But with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Paul always comes back to that, doesn't he? So many of his letters, he starts just hammering away at the salvation being by grace. There's nothing you can earn You can't earn salvation. It's a free gift from God for all those who repent and turn to Him and trust Him. It's a free gift. And then he turns right around and says, Now, because you're God's child, you need to act like this and act like this and act like this and act like this. Well, that's why we were under judgment. It's because we can't. We don't. We don't do that. But all along, he's saying, Act like this. This is correct behavior. That's wrong. Don't do that. Do this. And all along, he's saying... When you know who you are in Christ and you're 
walking in faith with Him and trusting His power to transform your heart. You can. You can be changed and be like His Son. If you're always mindful and you're, as you desire to be obedient, you're always mindful. Lord, only by Your power. Only by Your power. And so He reminds them of that here. You'll be able to endure it. Okay, even in commentaries, a lot of times, commentators will think, well, Paul has completely changed. He's long ago left the subject to meet sacrifice to idols. No, he hasn't. All of this comes back to that. So verse 14, what he's going to do is going to say, therefore, we're going to put all of this together from chapter 8, verse 1, all of this stuff we looked at, we're going to put it together. And his first warning is going to be to them about meat sacrifice to idols. Don't, in fact, participate in idolatrous activity. We're going to see what he's going to warn him is, don't use the fact that the meat itself doesn't have cooties on it, and it's all right to eat meat. Don't use that as an excuse to, in fact, you actually are participating in in idolatrous activity. Verse 14 through 22. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Don't do what the Israelites did in the wilderness. I speak to you as wise men, you judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation Israel. Aren't those who eat the sacrifices shares in the altar? What do I mean? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. See, he's still on the same subject. And he's going all the way back. I'm not contradicting what I said back in chapter 8. That's still true. The meat itself is just, is just meat. I'm still saying that. Verse 20, no, but I say that the things with the Gentile sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I don't want you to become sharers in demons. You can't drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You can't partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord's jealousy? We're not stronger than He, are we? This is referring right back to the Israel in the wilderness and in chapter 11, it's going to be them in their worship services and the way they were, the, their love feasts, the way they were handling it. So what's he saying here? Remember way back at the beginning when he said, if people see you in the temple? He didn't just say if they see you eating, they see you in the temple. Well, what he's warning them about is what I've already said, that you don't want to use the fact that you have the freedom to eat the meat as an excuse to, in fact, participate in the sinful behavior. And that's what some of them were doing. I'm going to use some examples, okay? So just brace yourself. There's not much point going over this if we don't get real, okay? And we're family here, all right? All right? So I just made a list of some things, and we're going to talk more specifically about some of them later. How about trick-or-treating on Halloween? I just picked things that I'm pretty sure we got people on both sides of the fence on some of these things. Let's say trick-or-treating 
on Halloween. I think Paul would say, all right, if you think it's all right to take your kids, if you have a clear conscience before the Lord to take your kids trick-or-treating, all right, but don't use that as an excuse to, in fact, go to the local Wiccan meeting and involve yourself in a bunch of um, occult practices and seances. All right, you may have a clear conscience about drinking a glass of wine with your supper, but don't use that as an excuse to, in fact, go to the lake with all your frat brothers and have a beer bust and get smashed. That's what he's saying here. All right, you may not think that it's prohibited to go to movies, and some people do. All right, you can go to movies, but don't use that freedom as, in fact, to get with some of your buddies and go to a bunch of, I don't know why they call them adult movies, but you know what I'm saying. Don't use that as an excuse. And that's what Paul is warning them about. Don't get puffed up and think, I've got this freedom, but really that's just an excuse that you are, in fact, indulging in that sin. But then there's another thing. He's going to go right back to where all of this started uh, at the beginning, verses 23 through 28. He's going to say, you be careful that if you exercise this right again, that you don't influence someone with a weak conscience to violate their conscience. Verse 23 through 28. All things are lawful. That's probably them talking. Paul agrees. But Paul says, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful. The Corinthians would say, well, Paul says, yeah, but not all things build up. Don't let anyone seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that's sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. But if anyone says to you, this is meat sacrificed to idols, don't eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. Okay, you can look in the commentaries and there's all kinds of things about their culture and whether this is an invitation to the person's home or if it's an invitation into the actual temple. Uh, We don't really have to sort out all the details to understand the point that he's making. Uh, The point he's making is... We need to be aware of what we're doing, whether or not it's influencing people that maybe are not very good at following their conscience. Uh, Just as Paul said in Romans, what's important is for each believer to be sure that they are confident in their convictions and they follow those convictions. And we don't want to be the instrument that moves people in the other direction. But now... This is the one place here that he's going to turn the tables a little bit in verse 29 and 30. I don't mean your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? This may not be very clear because Paul doesn't talk about this direction in 1 Corinthians very much. But go back to Romans 14 And he does. 
I'm not to influence my brother to do something that violates his conscience, but by the same time, he's not to be judging and condemning me. Paul is not talking about all of us tiptoeing around because we're afraid someone else in the church is going to say, In Romans 14, Paul tells the person to mind his own business. He's pretty blunt. Can we get real? I can't believe they would take their kids trick-or-treating. I would never do that. I can't believe that young lady got a tramp stamp. Everybody knows good kids don't get tattoos. Good grief. I would never do that. Did you know he drinks beer with his hamburger? I know a guy smokes a pipe after supper. Put their kids in public school. They must, I don't even know if they're believers. You know, all of these, Paul is not making fun of people that have these convictions, and neither am I. You don't know where I stand on some of these. You might be surprised what side on some of these things I stand. And all of you, I don't know about you, but that's a serious, these are serious deals. What Paul is saying is this attitude of judgmental condemnation like the older brother did with his younger brother. Um, and Well, actually, that's not a good example because the younger brother was, in fact, doing obvious sin. We're talking about an attitude of if my brother and sister has a conviction on either side of these things, that's between him and the Lord. And what the Lord has charged me with is not making him follow my rules, what God has charged me with is to encourage my brother to walk in faith and devotion to the Lord. Because I'm not the one that died on the cross for him. And when he stands before the Bama seat, I'm not going to be the one standing on the seat, uh, sitting on the seat. In fact, I'm going to stand next to him facing the Bama seat And the Lord says, David, I want to talk to you about how you treated your brother. When I'm up here preaching, it's not my goal to get all of you to believe what I believe. My goal is to follow my rules. My goal is to have you trust God because He is the one who is your Savior, not me. He's the one that has the truth. So Paul finishes with his summary statement here, 31 through 33. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How many of you heard that verse and even heard it, (laughs) have it memorized? Think about the context here. He's talking about this. We need to think about how our actions affect other people. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God, just as I also praise all men in all things, or please, excuse me, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. So, all the way back to the original question. Yes, there are times when it's appropriate for us to approach a brother or sister that's involved in sin and call them to repent of that because we have a loving desire to see them restored. But there are also situations 
where we need to just let it go. And as it says in Romans 14.10, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? For we'll all stand before the judgment seat of God. One more thing I'm going to mention that Paul does not directly mention in either Romans 14 or 1 Corinthians 8 through 10. But if you think about it long enough, or if you're involved in church leadership, it will come up. Who decides what issues warrant going and addressing my brother and saying, that's sin, you need to repent of it, as opposed to which issues are, you know what, that's a matter of conscience, and you need to follow your conscience, and we're going to let it go. Uh, For example, at Grace Bible Church, whether or not you, not even things about Christmas tree, let's get serious, okay? At Grace Bible Church, if someone has an ongoing problem with drunkenness, that's going to be viewed as something that we want to address in a person's life and say that's sin. That's not a matter of conscience, that's just sin. But on the other hand, Can I have a glass of wine with my supper or a beer with my hamburger? We're going to put that in this category of we need to give each other room. Who decides what's over here and what's over here? Well, fortunately, most of those things are spelled out in Scripture, but sometimes it is a judgment call. Sometimes it is a judgment call. And I think we as a congregation and then also working through the leadership, there are times... When a call has to be made, which category something is in. Um, but even when we do that, there's always that ultimate motivation that our desire is that we encourage each other to fall at the feet of our gracious Savior and let Him be our Lord. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we do thank You for being so gracious. It's the only reason we can call You Father. Lord, help us apply this. We realize it's such a simple, simple idea. And yet we can confuse ourselves and just in the fog of the situation and feelings and different opinions, it can seem cloudy. But Lord, I pray that You would give us clear thinking that always we would be motivated to see people depending on You and trusting you, and that we would not be simply putting stumbling blocks in one another's way, Lord. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.